0: How can the general practitioner and the internist help the chronically anxious patient? How can a physician cope with his own anxiety? These and other related questions are discussed in this record. The second of two records dealing with anxiety as it is commonly encountered in office practice.
1: The average patient who has come into the doctor's office having some degree of anxiety can be handled by his judicious use of prescriptions and
2: medications. Is there such a patient? There certainly is. There are many such patients, and they constitute many serious problems. And the first task here is the same as the first task in any serious problem, and that is the task of diagnosis. What is the reason, what is the basis for this chronic anxiety?
1: Well, Dr. Klein Schmidt, now that we have this patient who's chronically anxious, and the patient has uh, repeatedly received satisfaction from the doctor, in allaying anxious feelings at the time doesn't this tend to have the patient become dependent upon that doctor certainly
0: and the degree of dependence may be exactly what the patient needs because without this need the patient would not maneuver himself into the situation vis-a-vis his physician now it is not a dangerous situation that arises if the physician is able in a casual sympathetic way to allay the patient's fears of uh, separation and abandonment. There is a degree of dependency on this physician. Dr. Kaufman. I'd like to add
3: one other thing to that. There is no danger essentially of a patient being dependent on a physician except in certain situations the visa on the passport of a patient as a patient is to be sick. In other words this he needs in order to maintain his relationship to a doctor. Therefore, there is this danger that a patient may retain his symptoms in order to maintain the dependence. That's one aspect of it that every doctor should be aware of. It becomes much more dangerous when the doctor becomes dependent on the patient.
1: Dr. Fader, there's a little phrase that I remember from someplace, and that is that what one sees depends mainly upon what one looks for. This means, to me at least, that automatically the psychiatrist assumes that the patient has some uh, psychiatric component and therefore his diagnosis would be based upon this.
2: Do you agree with that, Dr. Fader? I think a good psychiatrist and the one who knows his medicine has to keep his mind open all the time, even though he concentrates on psychological factors. He must be aware of the many other factors that can be involved. And if he isn't, he's making a serious mistake.
1: Very good. Dr. Kaufman, all of us, I think, that practice medicine are of the opinion that too many diagnoses of psychoneurosis are based upon the impressions that we have rather than on specific indications. I think primarily we base our diagnosis, say, of a neurotic or an anxiety reaction, upon our inability to discover anything else to account for the symptoms. Would you comment on this?
3: Well, I think you've already made your comment. We have a, we might call it a shibboleth, that a diagnosis of a psychoneurosis should not be made by exclusion. Too frequently, such a diagnosis is made because something else wasn't found, which we then pick up so that there are as good criteria for the diagnosis of a psychoneurosis as for a great many other illnesses. Dr. Kleinschmidt?
0: I think that a profound misunderstanding that goes back to med school and most of us, probably, is based on the idea that anything that is organic in medicine is not neurotic and not accompanied by anything functional, Mm -hmm. while, again, There's a partisan attitude I find among doctors that uh, the internist practically fights for an organic cause of the illness and is almost disappointed if he has to refer a patient because there is also a component that is psychiatric that he either doesn't want to take care of or feels he is not entitled to take care of.
2: Dr. Fader? The internist and the general practitioner and the psychiatrist have a great deal in common when they do their job correctly. They are really the practitioners of comprehensive medicine. But there is another problem that we sometimes run into. In cancer patients particularly, I've run across many instances where the internist is all too eager to call something neurotic in his efforts to avoid the recognition that there is a serious organic disease going on. This has happened quite recently where a patient came into the hospital with complete assurance by a very competent internist that there was no evidence of metastatic malignancy. It was quite evident in about eight hours in the hospital that there was widespread evidence and that what was called depression was really a preterminal state. So that this is a manifestation, I might add, of anxiety in the physician, which I hope we will talk about sometime before we're through.
1: I trust we'll get to that subject. (laughs) Now, Dr. Kleinschmidt, when the patient becomes overly dependent upon the physician, the patient must necessarily be more demanding of the physician's time. And therefore, the average physician will rebel against this and come to the point where they try to avoid this dependence of the patient. How can this be
0: overcome? How can this situation be avoided? I think the physician should space visits far more carefully. Also, keep the time down maybe to 10 minutes and discourage unnecessary examinations or laboratory tests. We have the experience that at the times patients insist on repeated x-rays that already the family physician had judged unnecessary and they become the traveling patient. They go to another doctor to finally get these unnecessary tests. This should
1: be checked. Now we have then uh, the problem of uh, the anxious patient by their actions and their chronic anxiety causing the physician to become uh, anxious. Is there such a thing, Dr. Fader, as uh, anxiety in the physician?
2: There most certainly is. And uh, very often it's the physician's anxiety which is responsible for some of the difficulties that he gets into uh, with his patients. Uh, for instance, on the subject you were just discussing, if the physician starts out with the idea that he must meet the needs of the overdependent patient, he may be doing it because to rebuff that patient or to cause some antagonism in the patient would cause anxiety in him. The physician must always question what he's doing to uh, determine whether what he's doing is really based upon the situation or whether he's doing it because he wants to avoid a difficult time, which is euphemism for anxiety.
1: Now, Dr. Kaufman, after a patient becomes uh, overdependent upon the physician, are they in danger of developing a transference phenomenon?
3: Well, I wouldn't say a transference phenomenon presents any danger necessarily. A transference phenomenon is a pretty universal phenomenon. All it means essentially is that certain attitudes that stem from childhood are transferred or displaced onto other figures. Now, the danger of a transference may exist in a specific therapeutic situation where there is a displacement of old resentments, let us say, where they don't belong. But if all physicians recognize that not everything that the patient thinks or does in relation to that physician, is a personal matter, but is a transference matter. Then this gives you a kind of a buffer, namely to recognize that the demands are not necessarily on Dr. X as Dr. X, but this is the kind of thing they wanted from the parent, that the hostility which is expressed or communicated non-verbally is not necessarily because
2: you're a bad doctor, but some figure like you was bad to me. Dr. Fader? I think this is very important on the positive side too. When a patient begins to think you're very wonderful, it's important to realize that this is a transference reaction. When a patient comes into my office for the first time and in passing says, I think you have a very excellent taste in pictures, I become very wary because I'm being built up for something which has nothing to do with reality. Your wife's got the good (laughs) taste in pictures.
3: We have a kind of a saying around the hospital, don't take for granted that everything positive the patient feels of you is reality and everything negative is transference.
1: (laughs) Now, Dr. Kaufman, we had this uh, discussion about the physician's attitude Also that the physician himself often develops an anxiety What can the doctor do to allay his anxiety? I think that's
3: too difficult a question to answer in a generality. It depends upon the source of his anxiety Unfortunately, many doctors take tranquilizers or other drugs as an answer. I think if a doctor reacts consistently in this way Then I think he'd better take a look at himself, not necessarily to go to a psychiatrist for this, and uh, try to see what it is that, that triggers these things off for him. He may find that he's reacting to certain kinds of patients, to certain kinds of problems, or to problems that have nothing whatsoever to do with patients. I think if the physician understands his role, that this in itself becomes an important factor in limiting the anxiety reaction. For instance, let me give you an illustration of how the doctor's role is important. I fortunately was a consultant psychiatrist in the Pacific during the war, and we set up campaigns to treat uh, patients right in combat. We didn't introduce ourselves to the soldier that came in as colonel or major or captain. We said, I'm Dr. So-and-so. This was something that allayed the patient's anxiety, because he was now a patient, but it also served in an unconscious way to put us in our position as physicians. And I think if the doctor understands his role as physician and healer, then a great many of the things we say he should do, he
0: more or less would do automatically.
1: Dr. Schmidt?
0: I think also there are several, but at least two major sources of anxiety in the physician, which are quite widespread. One is that the doctor has problems of his own which are triggered off by a specific patient's problem and that he is not aware of his conflict. He only becomes anxious. But another not uncommon source of anxiety in the physician is often a very healthy anxiety. He is intuitively aware that he has missed something, not necessarily the whole diagnosis, but that he has missed something essential in the patient's presenting picture. In that case, I have recommended to practitioners at times to uh, verbalize their own feeling of discomfort about this to the patient. And it is remarkable how at times five or ten minutes of such a discussion uh, stimulate, provoke the patient to reveal issues, Mm -hmm. matters of conflict, that were concealed from the family physician for a very long
1: time. I'd like to now change the subject just a little bit. Dr. Kaufman, still keeping on anxiety that uh, is related there too, how about the physician himself who knows that the symptoms he has could be cancer and yet denies the possibility thereof? I think in many ways the
3: physician is the one category of people who runs away from this kind of knowledge, more than anybody else. I don't think there's a physician in practice who has not seen just this phenomenon. That the more the physician suspects that there's a malignancy of some sort, or an illness that's going to be fatal or crippling, the more the tendency is to this denial with all sorts of rationalizations. And I think half the problem we've discussed here today would not exist if there was a one-to-one relationship between intelligence and emotion. I had a physician friend who had a very malignant uh, tumor who knew it was malignant because the diagnosis had been told him who insisted this was psychosomatic. This was a very well-known psychiatrist insisted that this was psychosomatic and since none of his colleagues would agree with him he went to one of the fringe fringe people for therapy because he knew that if he could only uncover whatever it was this malignancy would disappear.
1: Well this brings up uh, the very current question that is smoking and the cause of cancer that is uh, it is recognized that there is some greater instance of the relationship of carcinoma of the lungs to smoking how can uh, one possibly justify smoking with the recognition of this.
2: Dr. Fader? When you say to a person, if you smoke long enough you'll get cancer in 20 years, uh, this is something which is not very real to him and it doesn't frighten him. But if you take a cigarette away from him and he walks around all day feeling deprived and perhaps a little empty, assuming that this is what happens, uh, then he's going to take care of the immediate pain first and he'll smoke and worry about the cancer later. Dr. Klein-Schmidt? I would agree with that and I would say that as an example, I think smoking is much more
0: related to overeating. People in this country have been made aware for a long time now that uh, obesity is dangerous, and yet since overeating allays anxiety, they are still quite capable of knowing how dangerous it is and yet continue to overeat. Are you telling us, Dr. Klein-Schmidt, that only uh, patients with anxiety smoke? Not only patients, doctors with anxiety smoke, too. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Kaufman? Smoking is a form of addiction. And
3: I'm a heavy smoker, so I can say this subjectively. That doesn't mean that everybody who smokes has anxiety, but everybody who smokes gets a certain kind of gratification. And I think that anything that gives an individual satisfaction immediately in a given situation that's tension relieving, is extremely difficult to give up for something in the future.
1: Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Dr. Fader, we had uh, some remarks here about the attitude of the physician in regard to the anxiousness or the anxiety state of the patient. What do you think of uh, telling a patient that they have terminal cancer or withholding the information? This, of course, creates anxiety in anyone.
2: As a psychiatrist, I don't have the same experience uh, with terminal patients, that is patients in the last 12 or 24 hours of life, as internists and general practitioners do, but I've had some. In my experience, I've had no patient, and I've given them plenty of opportunity, I've had no patient ask me what he or she was dying from. Those patients who were dying knew that they were dying. This wasn't the issue. What they were mostly interested in is having someone there with them who would more or less comfort them by their presence. I've never really discovered how to help a patient die favorably. The real problem in a dying patient is a problem of desertion and separation and loneliness. Mm -hmm. We don't know what death is. We can't conceptualize it. But we all know what it's like to be alone and afraid and in the dark. And this is what I take as my cue. I assume that every patient who is dying is terribly frightened about being alone. And I do whatever is necessary to give the patient the feeling that somebody is moving along with them. Dr.
0: Kleinschmidt? Schmidt, Well, I wanted to say almost exactly what Dr. Peter just said at the end and that is that patients who are in a terminal state or know that they have a fatal illness very often come to us and express grief. They are grieving about the loss of the people they love and this doesn't pertain only to the human beings around them but even to everything they have. In other words, that they have to leave this world causes grief and if they can share this grief, if we permit this, rather than to try something impossible, to uh, help them to give up the instinct of self-preservation and the will to live, then we may alleviate their fear of death, which is largely an anxiety about separation.
2: Dr. Fader? People have talked in the past of a tote fantasy, in which the person who is dying welcomes a gift from the person who is living and takes this gift as a way of a continued uh, relationship and so obviates the whole problem of separation. On the other hand, often a physician can give a gift to a person who is dying. Even a small personal gift, as I've done on occasion, of a small article of jewelry to a patient who is dying, served this purpose. Dr. Kaufman? It just seems to me in the light of this discussion
3: that this, in part, is a role that a physician can play. This is not the only aspect of it, obviously. All we can do is to say, as physicians, what can we do under these circumstances? And I think both Dr. Kleinsmann and Dr. Fader have indicated something that's extraordinarily important for the physician. I don't think, again, there's a stencil which says, follow
1: this, and therefore, everything will come out all right. In coming to some termination of discussion of this subject, of anxiety. Would you summarize our feelings in these regards? Dr. Kleinschmidt? I think
0: that uh, we have to go beyond anxiety and wishing so desperately to treat anxiety. I have in mind that there is no magic pill, there is no magic bullet a la Paul Ehrlich. There is the human relationship between at least two people and that is still the all-important issue that the physician whether he is an internist, a general practitioner, or a psychiatrist, have the patience to sit out certain problems, share certain conflicts and the communication of these conflicts from his patients to him, and patiently work through some of this with the patients, rather than to constantly search for an immediate, almost magic relief.
2: Dr. Fader? It seems to me that if a physician feels that he is capable and has the time to sit this out and to try to understand these situations, on the other hand, I think more and more ...to the human beings around them, but
0: even to everything they have, in other words, that they have to leave this world, causes grief. And if they can share this grief, if we permit this, rather than to try something impossible, to uh, help them to give up the instinct self-preservation and the will to live, then we may alleviate their fear of death, which is largely an anxiety about separation.
2: Dr. Fader? People have talked in the past of a tote fantasy in which the person who is dying welcomes a gift from the person who is living and takes this gift as a way of a continued relationship and so obviates the whole problem of separation. On the other hand, often a physician can give a gift to a person who is dying. Even a small personal gift, as I've done on occasion, of a small article of jewelry to a patient who is dying served this purpose. Dr. Kaufman? It just seems to me in the light of this
3: discussion that this, in part, is a role that a physician can play. This is not the only aspect of it, obviously. All we can do is to say, as physicians, what can we do under these circumstances? And I think both Dr. Kleinschmidt and Dr. Fader have indicated something that's extraordinarily important for the physician. I don't think, again, there's a stencil which says,
1: follow this, and therefore everything will come out all right. In coming to some termination of discussion this subject of anxiety, Would you summarize our feelings in these regards? Dr. Kleinschmidt?
0: I think that uh, we have to go beyond anxiety and wishing so desperately to treat anxiety. I have in mind that there is no magic pill, there is no magic bullet a la Paul Ehrlich. There is the human relationship between at least two people, and that is still the all-important issue that the physician whether he is an internist, a general practitioner, or a psychiatrist, have the patience to sit out certain problems, share certain conflicts and the communication of these conflicts from his patients to him, and patiently work through some of this with the patients, rather than to constantly search for an immediate, almost magic relief.
2: Dr. Fader? It seems to me that if a physician feels that he is capable and has the time to sit this out and to try to understand that he can deal with most of these situations. On the other hand, I think more and more psychiatrists all over the country are particularly eager to act as informal consultants with their internist and practitioner friends and colleagues. They don't necessarily have to see the patient, but they will more often than not be glad to discuss the problem that is bothering the physician, which might enable him to go on and handle the, uh, the case himself. Thank
1: you very much, and thank all three of you on this panel.
2: And thank you, Dr. Whitten. Look for your next psychiatric
0: record in your mail.